Hey guys, and welcome to the second edition of the Armchair Fantasy Corner, where everyday people have everyday opinions. And I'm your host, James Emmerich Wilson. Throughout today's podcast, we will go over and document some tips and tricks that will help you slaughter your competition. I guess you could say, I'm your fantasy football butcher. The first thing is you need to leave allegiances at the door. When going into a draft, don't be a homer. Outside of a Simpsons convention, being a homer will get you nowhere. I mean, there's obviously the exceptions to the rule if you're a Patriots fan or a Packers fan. You want the receivers or the running backs that go with those systems. There's always exceptions. But even then, don't draft too many players from the same team because then you're banking on um, an offense to succeed every time down. And only two players can score on any given drive, and that's a quarterback and receiver or a running back. All three can't score on the same play, so you're putting too many eggs into one basket, and it's typically not conducive to fantasy success. Next thing, there's no direct correlation between NFL talent and fantasy talent. I won my first championship with Tyler Thigpen as my starting quarterback. Now most of you are saying, who the hell is Tyler Thigpen? And that's my point exactly. Being good in fantasy does not mean that you were good in real life, and vice versa. The second championship that I ever won, Tim Tebow was under center, or in the shotgun based on the formation. (laughs) You have to separate NFL talent from fantasy relevance. Separate fantasy from reality. There are always those extremely talented players that don't fit systems. And there's those not-so-talented players, like Alfred Morris, his rookie season, or Royce Freeman this season, that will be given opportunity even though they aren't the most physically gifted players. Know who to avoid. Do yourself a favor. Before going into your draft, make yourself a do-not-draft list. And this can have players that you believe are injury concerns, or players that are coming off career years. That's what I did with Matt Ryan last year. I took him off my board because I didn't think he would return value on his draft position. He was coming off an MVP year where he was the quarterback too. And for that reason, that's exactly why I thought he would regress. He had a career year. It is called a career year for a reason. Typically after a career year, you don't make an ascension. You make a regression. Matt Ryan was the QB2 in 2016. Last year, he regressed all the way to QB15. His efficiency and touchdown numbers simply weren't sustainable from that MVP season. And that's exactly what I project for Carson Wentz this season. He had an extremely high touchdown rate. Um, Deshaun Watson, the same thing. And Deshaun Watson's second favorite target, Will Fuller. They all have unsustainable touchdown rates. Touchdown rates are not sustainable in the NFL. And you will see that. So do yourself a favor. And they don't have to be these players. But do yourself a favor. Go through and identify players you will not draft. Cross them out. Don't even think about that. Don't give yourself the opportunity to make a mistake and second guess yourself. Cross them out. Take them off your draft board and you will be doing yourself a favor. Not only do I take players off my draft board entering the draft, if I'm in a league where names are drawn or something like that to determine the draft order, 
and you get to choose your draft slot, I love picking 10th or 12th depending on how many teams are in the league. I do this because I like picking at the turn. I pick twice in a row, and I get to see how the draft unfolds in front of me. I get to see by the third pick, my third pick, I have a great sense of what other players are trying to do and what draft strategies they're employing. This will help me know what players I have to draft and which players I have to reach for. And I say that with air quotes because I don't believe in reaching. If you have a chance to get a guy that you are targeting and you value, go get your guy. I see nothing wrong with that whatsoever because who is to determine what value truly is? If you value that player, if you think that in the fifth round you need to take a player that has an ADP in the seventh, do it. Get your guys. Just like an NFL draft, stick to your board. If a guy that you value is there, get him. That way you cannot second-guess yourself, especially if you pick where I do at the turn. You have to overdraft because typically you don't pick for 20 more picks after you've made your two back-to-back. Not only do I prefer to pick 10th or 12th so that I can pick back-to-back and I can get a sense of everyone else's draft strategies, I also do it because I get the secret weapon of all secret weapons, the Big Daddy Nuke, Weapon X. That's the number one waiver priority. In multiple leagues last year, I drafted last intentionally. After the Saints rid themselves of the putridness that was stinking up their backfield in the old decrepit body of Adrian Peterson, the Alvin Kamara hype train had begun, and I had a first-class ticket. All aboard, motherfuckers. I heard the other players in my league talk about the prospect of getting Kamara. Knowing I had Kamara in the bag, I sat there doing my best Mr. Burns impersonation. The elation in their voices as they dreamt of the prospect of getting Kamara and it was all for naught. There is no greater feeling in the world than crushing the spirits of your league mates, especially as you watch their souls slowly die as they realize that their waiver dreams just became waiver nightmares because you had just picked up a potential league-winning player, and in Kamara's case, and my case last season, it turned out to be true. So my advice, guys, is to make the waiver wire your bitch. Play it like a fiddle and steal souls along the way. The importance of the waiver wire cannot be stressed enough. It happens every year in every league across fantasy football. There is always that certain someone who picks up a fantasy stud off the waiver wire and rides them like a knight in shining armor into the sunset. And by sunset, I mean the playoffs and most oftentimes a championship. Working the waiver wire is a lot like trying to pick someone up at the bar. If you keep trying harder and harder, you might just get lucky. As it pertains to the waiver wire, let the fools rush in. I am a firm believer that whether it be regular season or fantasy football, the first few weeks of the season mean nothing. How many times have we seen an NFL team start 4-0 and not make the playoffs? And it happens in fantasy as well. There is always that wide receiver who has four touchdowns in two weeks but averages just three or four targets per game and only has two more touchdowns the rest of the year because the touchdown rate isn't sustainable. These players are fool's gold. Let the less savvy the less experienced players burn their waiver wire number picking up these players while you sit in prime position to steal a player of significant relevance later on because your waiver wire keeps moving down as theirs moved up and it was all for naught. I am a firm believer that you cannot win your league championship in the draft, but you can sure as hell lose it. The secret to winning any championship is and all of you out there who have trophies or rings or belts know this. 
is playing the waiver wire. Play it like a fiddle. Go Charlie Daniels on that bitch and play the hell out of the waiver wire. Like I stated previously, I'm a firm believer that you cannot win your league championship in the draft, but you can sure as hell lose it. If you don't want to lose it, employ my vector system in the first five rounds. The vector system is vector. V-C-T-R stands for volume, carries, targets, red zone opportunities. Look at all of these things extensively when drafting in the first five rounds. You want to draft safe in those rounds, not high upside players. So you want players that are going to get volume. Volume consists of carries, targets, red zone opportunities. V-C-T-R. V is for volume. Draft guys that get a ton of looks, whether that's carries or targets or both, and they return a ton of production on those said looks. And avoid guys who give you as many 100-yard multiple touchdown efforts as they do four-point duds. Volume trumps talent. Even pedestrian athletes have fantasy relevance if they have a significant role, opportunity, I hearken back to Alfred Morris and his rookie season. Too often times, fantasy players are often tricked by big plays and short-term dominance that is typically fueled by touchdowns. These things always regress back to the mean. However, there is obviously always the occasional outlier, and that's the exception, not the rule. Focus on players who consistently rack up pass attempts at quarterback, carries at running back, and targets at receiver. Volume is key. Stay away from players like Tyreek Hill. He did finish at wide receiver 4 in standard and wide receiver 8 in PPR formats, but he only had 105 targets last year. On those 105 targets, he was uber productive. He had 75 catches for 1,183 yards and 7 touchdowns. And obviously, His speed is something to drool over. He's called the human cheetah for a reason, and he's used in the backfield occasionally. I get it, but Sammy Watkins is coming to town. There's a new quarterback who everyone is raving over at the moment, but let's get one thing straight. Pat Mahomes is not an upgrade over Alex Smith. Last season, Alex Smith had the highest quarterback rating of all time on deep balls, and deep ball is considered something over 20 yards. He was an MVP candidate, so unless you expect Pat Mahomes to come in his first season and be an MVP candidate and set all-time highs on efficiency on deep balls, Tyreek Hill will not repeat this production that he had this season. C is for carries. Look at a team's depth chart. Running backs that are listed as number one on the depth chart are always the best bet to get the most opportunities. I know, you're thinking to yourself, duh. Well, sometimes it's not that simple. Over the last three years, the listed number one back carried the ball 209 times and had 43 targets on average. Those are all running back one or low-end RB2 numbers. Also, It is important, incredibly important, to know how many carries are available in a particular backfield. So the Cowboys, go back and look at last season. Zeke missed some time, so add the number of carries that he had 
plus the ones that the other players had, and then you will get a better idea of how many carries Zeke will look at next year. It's in the 320 range, which definitely is RB1 worthy. Also, look to see how many carries a player had the year before. Look to see if there's a new old coordinator or if it's the same. If you're looking at a new incoming player like Deion Lewis, look to see how many carries were vacated the year before. And if it's a different offense, which in Deion Lewis's case it is, go back and look at that offensive coordinator's previous team. Look at his scheme. Look at what he liked to do. And then you can get a better sense of the volume or the amount of carries that those running backs are going to get. Going back to volume, typically when I draft an RB1, or at least who I perceive to be an RB1, I want that player's defense to be stout. Typically if a team has a stout defense, they're more inclined to run the ball. And conversely, with my quarterback ones, or at least who I perceive to be a quarterback one, I want their defenses to suck, to suck the big one. Like, that is why I think Russell Wilson will keep his top three QB status this season. The Seattle defense is going to be terrible, and they are going to be in a lot of shootouts. That's part of the reason why I think Deshaun Watson, other than just the touchdown regression, I think he'll come back to earth a little bit this season because their defense is going to get stops this year if they stay healthy, and that is not going to help him produce at a fantasy level. In real football, it'll help him be more efficient, but in fantasy, it won't help him be more fantasy relevant. T is for target. When you're looking for a wide receiver in the first five rounds, the more volume they're projected to get, the better you can feel about their positive fantasy outlook. The 150 or more target range is ideal for a lock to have a wide receiver one season, and the 120 target range is a lock for a wide receiver to have a wide receiver two season, top 24. Even in the later rounds, take a couple lotto picks, a couple dart throws on players you think have 120 target possibility or upside. If you take a wideout who's projected to get under that 120 mark threshold, you're betting on a slim chance and you're taking a huge risk. And we want to avoid risk in the first five rounds. Like I said, in the final few rounds, take a dart throw on somebody like Mike Williams, who if Keenan Allen goes down, he's in line for 120 targets. Take a chance on Geronimo Allison, the number two wide receiver for the Packers. We've seen the volume that that offense can produce. Same with a late round dart throw for Kenny Galladay or one of the other Lions receivers just based on volume. The target bar for wide receiver ones and twos is at least 120 targets. 85% of the top 12 finishers get to that mark. Just a quick example. Antonio Brown last year had 162 targets, wide receiver 2. DeAndre Hopkins had 174, wide receiver 1. Keenan Allen had 159 targets, wide receiver 3. Julio came in at wide receiver 6 with 148 targets. Mike Thomas, 149 targets, wide receiver 8. That is the target bar that you need to get to. Tyreek Hill last year was an outlier. He finished as the wide receiver 4, and he became the only wide receiver since 2000 to finish as a wide receiver 1. He finished in the top 12, while seeing fewer 
than 20% of the team's targets and fewer than 10% of the red zone targets. He only had five. The average number one wide receiver sees a 23% target share of his of his team's target share, and the number two wide receiver comes in at 16% and the third option at 10%. While I think Tyreek Hill is due for some negative regression, I think Alshon Jeffrey is in it for the positive type. Last season, he had 120 targets on the button, but he only finished with 57 catches for 789 yards and 9 touchdowns. Just like Tyreek Hill's positive season was an anomaly, I believe that Alshon Jeffrey's negative season was an anomaly, just based on the usage. Alshon Jeffrey, if he sees 120 targets again next year, should increase his totals up to around the 70 catch range, over 1,000 yards, and possibly 9 to double-digit touchdowns again. R stands for red zone opportunity. For running backs, the second most important stat behind number of carries and number of targets is red zone carries and opportunity. Last season, the running back one, Todd Gurley, and the running back two, Le'Veon Bell, also finished one and two in red zone attempts, both of which had over 60 carries in the red zone. Melvin Gordon, who was the running back five, was third with 49 red zone attempts. Kareem Hunt had the seventh most red zone attempts, and he finished as a running back three. Melvin Gordon, the running back five, had the third most red zone attempts. LaShawn McCoy, running back seven, eighth most. Jordan Howard, top 15 in rush red zone attempts. Zeke Elliott had the fifth most red zone attempts and in 10 games. He had the fifth most. That's the type of positive regression that I'm looking for. He finished fifth in 10 games. If he plays that extra six, games he is looking at elite top three status with Gurley and Bell that is actually why my preferred running back entering this season is Zeke Elliott if I picked first overall my pick would be Zeke Elliott next in New England Rex Burkhead and Sony Michelle are more valuable than their current ADPs simply based on the red zone opportunities that New England affords since Belichick took over in New England, only one season have they not finished in the top three in red zone visits. That is a lot of opportunity. The Patriots' 62.5 touchdown percent in the red zone was the third behind Philadelphia and Jacksonville. The Patriots' 4.4 red zone scoring attempts per game were number one in the league last season. The top five red zone scoring attempts per game were the Patriots, as we previously said, at 4.4, Rams with 4.3, Steelers with 3.9, Vikings at 3.5, and Saints, Falcons, Eagles at 3.5 as well. And what do all these teams have in common? Outside of the Patriots and Steelers, the Rams, Vikings, Saints, Falcons, and Eagles all had top 12 defenses last year. Like I said, at a from a running back perspective, I want my top-end running backs to have upper echelon defenses. It gives the offensive coordinator more stability and offers him more opportunity to call running plays. A, they're not behind, and B, typically stout defenses, if they're not giving you three and outs, they're creating turnovers. And turnovers typically help you cross the 50-yard line where you're more inclined to run the ball for field position. And not only... 
were the Patriots, Rams, Steelers, Vikings, Saints, Falcons, and Eagles all top five in red zone scoring attempts. They were also all top seven in red zone scores per game, as they should be. The more attempts you have, the more scores you should have. Where's the value? Like I said, last year, Alshon Jeffrey had a down year, but he salvaged fantasy points by converting touchdowns. He had nine last season on 17 red zone targets, which was tied for ninth in the league. Teammate Nelson Aguilar finished eighth with 18 red zone attempts. The Eagles offense provided a lot of red zone looks last season, and even though I believe they are in for a slight touchdown regression this season, the red zone looks that they got give me peace of mind when I'm drafting any Eagle in the top five rounds. Well, that concludes this episode of the Armchair Fantasy Corner podcast. You can find me on Twitter at jmrickwilsonff and find more Armchair Fantasy information at thearmchairscoutingcorner.com. I'm James Emrick Wilson, and it's been a pleasure.